We'll hear argument next, number 96-7000, Bobby Lee Ramdas versus Ronald Angelone. Mr. Brock. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In Simmons v. South Carolina, this Court held that a capital defendant may rebut the State's allegation of future dangerousness by showing, if it is so, that he could never be paroled from prison on a life sentence if the jury gave him a life sentence. Immediately after deciding Simmons, this Court reversed this case and remanded it to the Virginia Supreme Court for reconsideration in light of Simmons. The issue now presented is whether the Virginia Supreme Court erred when it effectively engrafted onto this Court's holding in Simmons an additional requirement that in order to come within the ambit of Simmons, a defendant must not only have no possibility under State law of being released on parole throughout his entire lifetime, but also that that ineligibility have been formally declared on the day of his capital sentencing. Now, well, you say that the Court engrafted that onto Simmons, but I, I thought that Simmons had simply spoken in terms of uh, eligibility for parole under State law. Yes, but it, it looked at, it implicitly looked at all of State law. Well, how, and can, not you, how can you say it implicitly looked at all of State law? Parole eligibility under Simmons means that there is no possibility of parole absent, and the Court looked at remote, uh, what it described as the plurality described as hypothetical possibilities, some of which well, would but, have. But the plurality is not the controlling opinion in that case. Yes, but the concurrence um, necessarily had to accept, the pl- in order to reach the same result, had to uh, accept the plurality's characterization of parole ineligibility as not including remote hypothetical possibilities. And it listed such things as commutation, which can lead to parole eligibility, uh, and release on parole, uh, clemency, which can have the same, and also change of law. In other words, it looked to state law. When you say, now tell me again, when you say it, what are you referring to, the plurality opinion? Well, the plurality made this explicit. But the concurring opinion of Justice O'Connor, which uh, created the majority in Simmons, could not uh, have taken any other view, because if that was correct, then it would not be if, — if, if the plurality opinion as to what constituted ineligibility was not the view of the Court, then Simmons uh, — the, the holding of Simmons as expressed by the uh, concurring opinion uh, could not have been handed down, uh, because it would not be possible to say — 
given these remote hypothetical possibilities in the future, that Mr. Simmons himself was truly ineligible. Well, this for is something slightly different than that, of course. It's not a remote hypothetical possibility at all, but rather an expected entry of a judgment, is it not? Yes, but it is. And, and is that a ministerial act, or, or what was to take place here? Is it a uh, something that might well not have occurred, the entry no. of the judgment? No. Whether we call it ministerial or whether we simply acknowledge that it was inexorable really makes no difference. It was going to happen. The, jur- the jury's verdict on this, what would have been the last strike, uh, had been uh, handed down. He had been found guilty. Uh, all motions to, to strike the evidence, that is, for directed verdict, uh, judgment NOV, in effect, had been already denied, and under Virginia law could not be renewed. The sentencing was 19 days away. Now, the interestingly, the state has never, until its brief in this court, ever identified something, anything, that might have happened in reality to, um, to block the entry of that judgment and thus... Now, the uh, defense counsel did tell and argue to the jury. Yes. Did he not that he this person would never, as a practical matter, get out if he lived to be 120? Yes. But Virginia law prohibited him from giving the most important aspect of that, which was that these long terms of years could not be reduced by parole. And the jury spotted the omission. And we know that. We don't have to speculate about that because they came out and said, if we give him life, is there any possibility of parole? Now, this is the Simmons question. Recall that Simmons is a right of rebuttal. It is not a right to have the defendant's technical legal status on the day of his sentencing hearing exhibited to the jury. It is a right to rebut an issue that the state brings into the case in, uh, under Virginia law, uh, and under Virginia law, it was joined much more vigorously than it ever was in Simmons. In Simmons, it was a non-statutory factor that arguably was present in the prosecutor's jury argument. Here, it was the entire legal basis for the state's request for the death penalty. Mr. Not Brook, in, in this yes. case, you say, you know, it's pretty clear that it would have — well, in the next case, it won't be quite so clear that, uh, you know, that, that he will get the third — the third strike, which will render it impossible for him to be paroled. And the next case will be a little less clear than that. Frankly, I, I don't know where to stop, short of the bright line that's urged by your opponents in this case, which is, at the time the sentence in this case was pronounced, could you say it was the state law that this person uh, could not be paroled? And you could not say it at the time that this, uh, that this jury was sitting. But we do say that, because what Virginia failed to do is to look not at the single statute, but at the entire relevant body of state law, which includes the provisions of state law that I was citing a moment ago to Justice Well, Well, Shouldn't we look to the Virginia Supreme Court for that decision as to — I mean, are you saying that the state Supreme Court, in deciding a question of whether someone was parole eligible, uh, made a mistake of state law? No. Uh, we should what definitely look to the Virginia law if the state gives us the law and if the state looks at the relevant state law. But that is what Virginia failed to do. They looked not at the issue 
In, in effect, the issue that they well, had to address — I'm sorry. Well, you, you, you concede, don't you, that under the law of Virginia, this person was not eligible for parole at the, at the, uh, at the critical — or was eligible for parole at the, at the critical point? We concede that — that under Virginia law, his ineligibility had not yet been formally declared. But when one takes into consideration the other provisions of Virginia law, we by no means can see that there was any possibility of his ever being paroled. And that is the question in rebuttal that, that it was so crucial in this case and that Simmons recognized what the Virginia a, a defendant has a due process right uh, to have the jury know about. Well, you're, you're saying, I guess you're saying, that the question of what is a sufficient certainty or a sufficient probability, if you will, that there will be no parole is a question of federal law. That's a question of what Simmons means, and Simmons was a constitutional decision. Yes. So v- Virginia can say, yes, in, in this sense, uh, the, the ineligibility is yet to be determined because a decree has not been entered. But I think you're saying the question before us, the Simmons question is, is it certain to a sufficient degree of probability, however we may want to articulate that, for Simmons' purposes, that he will not at some relevant future time be parole eligible, and that's a question of federal law. That's correct. Now, that is certainly a a question that is, that is, um, that arises from state law. Uh, but I think it's tremendously important in this case that the Virginia um, — it, we do not disagree with an answer from this Virginia Supreme Court that we don't like. Virginia never addressed that question. And the Commonwealth now says that that question has nothing to do with Simmons, that the state court was under no obligation, in effect, to, to say what the correct answer to the jury's question was, that that has nothing to do with Simmons. It, Well, uh, Justice um, Scalia has raised a question, which I think is one that should be of concern, and that is, where do you draw the line? Where is the line drawn? And if we were to agree with you that in substance it was, in effect, just a ministerial act that remained, and therefore this man was parole ineligible, what about the next case where, as a practical matter, uh, the defendant wouldn't be uh, parole eligible for 80 years. Uh, must that be given also to the jury in an appropriate case? If, well, Simmons, of course, said lifetime, and it would arguably, I think, be an extension of Simmons to to change that. And, of course, we cannot extend Simmons in habeas. And so I you would that. concede that that yes. kind of hypothetical yes. is ruled out by Simmons, that to yes. do that would require an extension? That I do but you that. think that you fall within Simmons, properly understood, without extending it in this case? Yes, yes, we absolutely uh, believe that. R- recalling, uh, of May course, I go back to with the, the question? One of the things I, I believe that I said in Simmons, it doesn't necessarily have to be the judge if the lawyer can bring it out. And here the lawyer told the jury, but we know that the jury. Uh, had a question on that question. They were deliberating for, what, three hours, and they came out and said, if defendant is given life, is there a possibility of parole at some time before his natural death? And that's the question that the lawyer had wanted to answer before, and but he couldn't under Virginia law. Precisely. Precisely. So, 
So he couldn't do what Simmons said uh, a lawyer could do, and then the judge doesn't need to do it. But this Virginia uh, Virginia law prohibited the lawyer from doing that. That is exactly correct. Um, and um, it makes no difference if the answer was uh, was no. He would not be ineligible for parole. But that was not the answer under Virginia well, law. You, you ultimately have to come back to that. You ultimately have to come back to showing that that was not the answer. And I think that's very clear. I mean, the state. May, may I? This is a jury that's not composed <laughs> of lawyers. Their question was, didn't say, is this person eligible for control? They asked, is there a possibility of parole at some time before his natural death? They were asking, is there any chance he's going to get out? Exactly. Exactly. And that is the question with which Simmons is concerned. That's why I say, and it is clearly established. Is that what Simmons considers? It's not a matter of law. It's just, you know, what, what are the odds uh, uh, if, if it's really a thousand to one, even it, though there's a, no. you know, a small possibility under state law? Is that what no, Simmons it is? It arises Doesn't have from to be absolute impossibility under state law? Yes. Yes, that's correct, with the exception of remote hypothetical possibilities in Simmons. Oh, I see. So it's not absolute. It's It's, it's — Nothing is absolute except death. Well, no. I think think whether under current, whether under current Virginia law, he will be ever eligible for parole can be absolutely answered yes or no. There would be a much easier rule to apply than the one you said. But it would not apply the rule in Simmons. It would change and constrict the rule in Simmons. And the best proof of that is the facts of Simmons itself. Because if Virginia was correct that the rule of Simmons only can be called upon when state law has already affixed the stamp of parole ineligibility to a defendant, then Simmons would have lost the case. And the reason for that, as the state pointed out in their brief in Simmons, is that under South Carolina law, and there was state case law, uh, state against McKay, state against Torres, making this very clear that in South Carolina, the decision as to whether or not the two strikes and you're out statute that was involved in Simmons uh, um, prohibits parole is made not by the sentencing court. In fact, it may not be made by the sentencing court. It is made after conviction by the parole board. And the court may not make that decision. And that was one of the reasons why South Carolina uh, 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 created the rule of no comment that was partially invalidated. That just says that the court can't make the decision. It, do, it doesn't say what the decision had to be. The decision by the parole board had to be yeah, that he was in The decision had not yet been made. The decision has asking. not yet been made. That's correct. By, the, by the authority who had the authority to make the decision. And had the Attorney General of South Carolina taken the view uh, that the Commonwealth takes now, they would have made exactly the same argument and said, well, there are statutory exceptions. Perhaps the parole board, th- there's no South Carolina case construing these exceptions to the two strikes and you're out rule. We don't know that the South Carolina parole board might not uh, have said that his priors were part of a continuing course of conduct, takes him out of the rule. And all kinds of things could happen. Lightning might strike. And that, in effect, is Virginia's argument here, that lightning might strike. is there he was in the rule. All of the factors that had to occur before the parole board decided the case had occurred. And here something has not occurred, which is essential to the judgment that you're not parolable, namely that you've been convicted three times. Uh, 
Justice Scalia, hadn't occurred. everything in Simmons had not occurred either, because under South Carolina law, which is different than Virginia's, the parole board has to make a factual determination. Now, it, it's no. true that the antecedent no, material for That's that just a determination. Sure, the determination hadn't been made. But all of the factors that bear upon that determination had occurred. And here, all of the factors that, that, that bear upon the determination you want made had not occurred. The only factor that remained, I, I, I don't believe it's a real distinction because, because of the difference between South Carolina law but the, um, and, and Virginia. Uh, but the only factor that remained here was that 19 days hence, um, judgment would be entered uh, on this uh, armed robbery conviction. Now, what, um, what is so revealing about this, and recalling, of course, that we're dealing with the right of rebuttal, the State says, beyond a reasonable doubt, jurors, will he commit acts of violence in the future? Not will he be a dangerous person. That's not the sentence in question. It's will he commit acts of violence in the future that will, that will or that would pose a substantial threat to society. Now, that is the issue that the State joined in this case. And under Simmons, he was allowed to give the critical information that he was, whatever threat he might pose, was going to be in prison. Now, the state, as I say, has never offered a suggestion, um, just as the Virginia Supreme Court certainly offered no suggestion, of how, on the level of reality, uh, this ineligibility could could fail to become um, uh, final. But finally, in the brief, they do make two suggestions. And the suggestions show why Virginia has been so reticent about engaging this on the level of reality up till now, because both suggestions, one is that the prosecutor in the other case might decide to null-pross the case after the jury's guilty verdict. And the other suggestion is that the judge might whimsically decide to dismiss it. Um, Now, this, I think, can only be described as unlawful behavior, or certainly arbitrary behavior. And that cannot be the foundation for a finding that there was, that the answer to the jury's question in this case, the Simmons question, was yes. The answer to the jury's question was no. Now, it is true that lightning might strike, but it was true in Simmons. And the Simmons plurality listed some of the ways Mr. in which Brooke, what lightning. What about the answer is this, you're asking us to draw the line where in, in practical reality, we know that this person is going to get judgment entered on the conviction. But suppose it's just that somebody has pled guilty to uh, a qualifying, uh, a crime that would qualify for a strike, hasn't yet been sentenced. uh, Exactly the same thing would apply. In fact, um, Simmons itself was based on guilty pleas. The the the, but the in Simmons, there was the, 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 the adjudication. I'm, I'm taking this case one step back from where we are in the Domino Pizza case. So the, the, um, it's not just that the, that all post-trial motions had been made and nothing, nothing was wanting except the judge's signature on the judgment, but there's just been a, Guilty plea. There's no, been no sentencing. 
A guilty plea is at least as conclusive as a jury's verdict. It's an admission of everything uh, necessary to support the judgment. Uh, in the absence of any um, reason to doubt the validity of that guilty plea, we have the same issue. But, of course, well, I take it you would accept a reasonable doubt standard. Is there any reasonable doubt that this person will, will be parole eligible uh, you know, some future. That would be, uh, I, and I think that's a nice way of restating the holding of Simmons. In what, what if he's only been indicted for the third crime, but the, the evidence is overwhelming? Simmons does not apply. Simmons, why not? I mean, chances are you know, virtually certain he's going to be convicted. I, I, you say Simmons would apply if would, he had already I, confessed to that third crime, even though he hasn't yet. What if he's confessed to it? I'm sorry? What, what if, if he's confessed to the third crime? Um, if uh, it, I, I do not believe that Simmons could be read to extend that far without extending it. Why not? I mean, as you say, if he's confessed, he's we going to be We don't even convicted. know if it's going to be prosecuted. But this is a situation where a jury's verdict or, or in the hypothetical, a guilty plea has been rendered. And that puts this in a different — it is always possible, of course, to imagine — I know. And I don't, I don't want to go nuts trying to figure out how far down the line uh, we're, we're going to carry is this. Is the issue of reasonable doubt, as you've now phrased the thing, is that that submitted to the jury? No, this is a, this is a question uh, of law, and in the vast majority of cases, there will be no doubt whatsoever. Indeed, this issue well, can no longer arise. Well, if it's under an issue law. of law, ordinarily you don't speak of an issue of law as being decided on the basis of beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, we did not use that term in our in but our I brief. But I thought you took, agreed with Justice Souter. Well, I, I think that is that is one way of looking at it. The uh, the question is any possibility, accepting remote hypothetical. Um, remote hypothetical possibilities. Why, why, don't, why don't we say that the determination is a determination which depends both on law and on fact? And in it making does. that mixed determination, we require a very high standard of probability. Uh, I, I, I would be quite comfortable with that. I, finally, before I sit down, I, I'd just like to say that this um, this would be a different case had Virginia engaged that analysis, but they did not. Uh, a state court's determination, the state charges us with arguing about state law. That's not right at all. Had Virginia asked that question, the Simmons question, in effect the jury's question, and answered it based on state law, it would be a very unusual case in which a federal court could go behind that. It would really require, I think, a showing that the state court's um, answer was in some sense a deliberate evasion of the, of the federal right. But Virginia did not a- address, let alone answer, that question. And that is why the decision here is contrary to Simmons, because that is the, sim- the question in Simmons. If I may, I'd like to re- Just one, one question. The, the, this, the question presented to us in, in the State's submission uh, do not quarrel with the fact that you or your, your, the Petitioner's Counsel at the trial uh, submitted a suggestion, suggested response uh, to the uh, jury's question that it, it, it seems to me, almost takes away your argument in this case. Well, l- l- let us recall that he was working under the strictures of Virginia law, which were absolutely settled. He was, he was floundering, trying and it was to fashion pre- And it was pre-Simmons. Still, and it was pre-Simmons. So still, uh, it, it, it seems to me that the, 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 the answer uh, that, the, that the trial counsel suggested uh, contradicts uh, most of the arguments you're making here. He was halfway through thinking on his feet about how he could fashion something that wouldn't uh, contradict Virginia law, which is contrary I, to I understand, but the point is it seems to me not very well preserved in the record. 
of course, the Virginia uh, Supreme Court did not, ba- in any sense, base its uh, decision on that, but reached the merits, if I may. Very well, Mr. Brock. Uh, Ms. Baldwin, we'll hear from you. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the question before the Court is not whether the Virginia Supreme Court erred, as was stated this morning. The question is not even whether um, Ramdas's claim could possibly fall within the ambit of Simmons. The only question before the Court is whether under 2254D, the Virginia Supreme Court's decision was an unreasonable application of clearly established law. So unless Ramdas's claim of, of um, functional um, review of parole ineligibility is somehow clearly established federal law, unless, in other words, it falls within the four corners of Simmons, then he is not entitled to relief in this collateral case. And that's, that's an important distinction here. He cannot meet that requirement for several reasons. Um, first of all, you look at Simmons in the four corners of Simmons, nowhere in any way, shape, or form, implicitly or explicitly, is this functional view of parole eligibility voiced or discussed. Well, would you, in this connection, would you comment on, on your brother's argument that uh, this case is like Simmons because in neither case uh, was there a decree in so many words by a court uh, that the individual was parole ineligible? In Simmons, the, the, I guess the parole board had, had never come to that conclusion, and in this case, the, the judgment had not been entered in the third case. So he said it's on par with Simmons. Would you comment on that? Justice Souter, the reason why we can't even consider that argument under 2254D is because it's not contained in Simmons. That argument has been gleaned from the briefs that were, that were submitted by South Carolina and by the transcript of the oral argument in the case. Well, Nowhere there was, in the there was case. no, I think maybe he would say, even, even accepting your response, there's no determinant, there's no statement in Simmons, uh, to the effect that there had been an entry of, of a, a kind of definitive order. And so if one wasn't required in Simmons, wasn't, one isn't required here. I think a reasonable jurist and, and objectively, reasonably, could have looked at the opinion in Simmons and determined, because of the tremendous repetition of the phrase ineligible under state law, almost the word parole ineligible was almost never standing alone. It's always coupled multiple times in, in both the concurring opinion of Justice O'Connor and in the plurality opinion, over and over, of ineligible under state law. And that can only have one meaning in Virginia, and that means upon entry of a judgment order. Nowhere well, else the question, could — The question is what, it, what that phrase means as a matter of federal law. And, and his argument is that it, it can't mean that a, a definitive decree stating in exactly those words, parole ineligible, must have been entered, uh, because, number one, the Simmons opinion didn't say so. And number two, uh, and I think this is correct, 
the record in Simmons indicated that there had been no such decree entered. Correct, but we cannot. But that's imp- that, that's a question of federal law. Well, we cannot. First of all, we cannot impute anything in the briefs or the oral argument to the Virginia Supreme Court. And the determination under 2254D is whether the Virginia Supreme Court's decision was a reasonable application of Simmons. So right there, we cannot look at what, unless this court is going to rule, which I don't think it possibly could, that a that a state Supreme Court not only is now responsible for reasonably applying the opinion from this court, but also must go behind that to determine what implicitly the court meant by let, reference to let, the briefs, etc. Let me ask you this. For example, suppose the judge on the third case here had taken the order form home in order to sign it. He's overworked and had a lot to do, and he takes a lot of homework home. He signed it, but failed to get it back to the clerk or got it back to his clerk two days later, and so it wasn't formally entered in the docket by the clerk, by the stamp, until after Ramdas had been uh, sentenced. Now, uh, covered by Simmons or not? Not covered by Simmons, Justice O'Connor, because in that case, I think that would present a different case, one in which once presumably the defendant found out about this, it would be his duty to bring that to the attention of a court, and if some error of state law occurred, for instance, let's, let's assume that actually the order had been entered on that third case and the judge in Ramdas's capital case didn't even know about it. Let's assume that there was a clear error of state law. That would be the defendant's duty to bring that to the attention of the court, take it up on appeal, and get reversed. What happens if it's uh, subject to appeal? It's, I don't understand. The I mean, we have Mr. Simmons back. And Mr. Simmons says, you know, there's something you didn't know about. Although I'd been convicted and I, the conviction had been entered, it could have been reversed on appeal. He doesn't say that. The state says it. It would depend. How does he get it? We're going to execute him now? It would depend on what the state law is on the parole. Well, well I mean, so far, right, fine. Let's suppose the state say the following. In our state, here, here's how it goes, right? The prosecutor says this is a very dangerous person. Better execute him. The defendant says, Judge, I would like to tell the jury that I happen to be in jail forever. I can't get out on parole. Right? And the rule is, the rule is, he has a right to tell him that if, under state law, he's ineligible for parole. All right? Well, why isn't he ineligible for parole? You say, well, because although the jury had convicted him, the judge hadn't yet done the ministerial thing of putting the order down. Well, I say all the time people convict somebody. They may be ineligible for parole. Maybe there'd be an appeal. Maybe he'd be reversed on appeal. Maybe they'd be. Uh, may, may, maybe they would decide the prisons were overcrowded. Let them all out. May, may, maybe they would decide. Uh, maybe there'd be a war, and everybody'd get an amnesty. Now, 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 suppose a state said, by the way, in our state, we consider a person ineligible for parole only when it's really definite. Only when we can be really certain that they won't be reversed on appeal, that there won't be a general amnesty given by the governor, that there will not be a declaration of war, and so we have to get everybody out to fight in the armed services. We, in our state, we consider all those things have to happen. Should a federal court say, oh, that's very different from Simmons? Well, just as far as your question, that, that under that particular state's law, those are factors that go into the state's yeah, determination of parole eligibility. On your view of it, uh, you know, we're in, what we're imagining is ridiculous possibilities. In fact, mm-hmm. the possibility of reversal on appeal is a lot less ridiculous 
than the possibility that this judge wouldn't enter the order. But what we're considering are fairly ridiculous possibilities, and a state court that happens to announce under our state law a person is really ineligible for parole only when all those ridiculous possibilities are negative. I'm saying, I think, in your, your view is, if the state court says that, what? If the state law is, and, and, and Justice Breyer, disagree that the entry of a judgment order on conviction is anything technical or, mini, or, or that would be a formalistic. Fine. That would be a different Whatsoever. Question. The yeah. Fourth Circuit ruled, and I, and I think it's correct, that the entry of a judgment order making someone, divesting someone of eligibility for parole is not a trivial matter. It's a very, what the Fourth Circuit termed, an age-old rule. That before no, but what I'm doing is I'm, I'm not being clear myself. You see, I'm trying to find out what your argument is. Is your argument that if a state court were to say, in our state, you're not ineligible, the law is identical to what it is in Virginia, but for one thing, the state court announces, we consider you ineligible for parole only when all appeals have been terminated. We consider you ineligible for parole only when the governor announces he's not going to give you a pardon, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. What's your view of how that works? My view is that under the laws that exist today, under the four corners of Simmons, then if he is ineligible under state law, he gets the Simmons instruction, and if he is eligible under state law, he does not. Now, if this Court wants to extend that due process right by some extra considerations of other procedures or taking into account some other state's procedures and wants to expand on Simmons, then it must do so in that case on direct appeal, not collateral. So in your your view, if the state court were to say, we consider our people ineligible for parole only when the governor announces he's not going to give a pardon, in your view, that person would not qualify for the instruction under Simmons? Under, currently under Simmons. I, yes, Justice Breyer. And, of course, there's no, to my knowledge, there's no such state that has that type of parole law. If I, if I, if I believe that you were wrong about that, would you lose? Uh, wrong about If I believe that Simmons, that would be so far from what Simmons intended that, that — No, I would not lose in this case, because awesome. my case does not present those facts. My case, I don't think under any interpretation of 2254D, it could be said that the Virginia Supreme Court's interpretation or application of Simmons was unreasonable, objectively or otherwise. Well, except for the fact that the entry of the judgment may have been a purely ministerial thing. It, it was not — it was not in any way — a situation where it wouldn't be entered in the Justice O'Connor, it was not. That it, Ram Dass's um, argument on that point is is completely wrong on Virginia law. Tell he us has why. conceded that that the authority in Virginia gives to a circuit court the authority um, to vacate or set aside um, a jury's conviction before entry. Um, of judgment. He has Sua conceded sponte. that. Sua sponte, the judge can do that? Certainly may. Yes, Your Honor. Um, it's, it's you, have, uh, you have given us in your brief uh, a, a couple of factual scenarios on which the judge might do that. There, and there are many and more, you, Justice No, but, but there may be many more, but I, I'd like you to comment on what seems to me the just total lack of reality uh, of the suggestions you made. The judge, one of your examples was, well, the judge in that case might say, uh, look at this poor guy. He's just been convicted of murder. We, 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 he shouldn't have so many convictions against him, so I'm going to vacate the judgment here. I mean, 
that's not a real-world example. And if, if that's the basis upon which you think uh, something might happen other than the entry of judgment, then I, I just don't think that you've got a realistic sure. argument. Am I missing something? Justice Souter, I believe that, that it's, it's Virginia Supreme Court Rule 3815 gives a circuit court unfettered authority to set aside the judgment. Now, have you ever known of a circuit court that said, gee, I feel so sorry for this fellow because he's got too many convictions against him. I think I won't enter judgment in this most recent one. Do you have an example? I, I think that absolutely what could occur in that sentencing my, my question was whether you had an example. Is, do they do that in Virginia? They certainly do. They now, do? They you, have, be, you have examples in Virginia in which judges say too many justice. convictions, I won't enter judgment? I think that what could go into a judge's thinking is when presented with some error of law that occurred at trial, and we have no — there's a record in this case does not show — what Rambis was prepared to argue at that sentencing hearing in the Domino's Pizza case. But, but he could have argued that the judge had turned down all post-trial motions. No. No? No. He had, what he had rejected, and this is what's been kind of unclear from Rambis's argument, what he had rejected were your typical motions to strike on the basis of insufficiency of the I evidence. I had been the equivalent of a, whatever they call it these days, a, um, directed verdict, NOB, no, he was, he was set for a sentencing hearing, which meant at that hearing he could have filed a motion to set aside because of some legal error that occurred at trial. A judge and a prosecutor both could very well in that case, after he'd already had a death sentence entered, decide that they did not want to risk having some bad legal um, ruling go up on appeal. That, that's a perfectly right, — that could the, happen the, the legal rulings at the trial itself. Correct. Those all would have had to have been made, wouldn't they? No, no, Justice Ginsburg. What in the but, in the in the sentencing hearing, he had a right under Rule 3A15 to file a motion to set aside, even though for legal error. Even though he had made, didn't he make a motion? To my knowledge, the only thing that was, was did he make a motion post verdict? I believe not at the sentencing hearing. I no, believe I'm he talking made about what on sufficiency made. of the evidence, as far as I know. Yep. The record doesn't show what other possible legal errors there. We just don't know what he could have done at that hearing. No, but I no suppose idea. by a parity of reasoning, then, that the, that the um, uh, parole ineligibility wouldn't have been certain upon entry of judgment by the trial court, because he could always appeal. An appeal could always reverse it. I mean, there's, there's, there's no end. But that's not the rule in Virginia, Justice Souter. That's not the rule in Virginia. The rule in Virginia under the Virginia Supreme Court's ruling is once the conviction order is entered, at that point, then the Department of Corrections can consider that conviction. No, but our question is, is, is the Simmons question, the federal law question is, is the ineligibility certain to a very high degree? And, and you're saying, no, it's not, because under Virginia law, entry might not have been entered. A judgment might not have been entered on this conviction. And the reason might be because the judge felt sorry for him or for some other reason or, or because he made a, a, a motion which we don't now have before us, uh, a, a motion that might have led the judge to do that. And, and my point is, if that possibility is sufficient for Simmons' purposes to say uh, that his parole ineligibility is uncertain, then the possibility of his appeal and some success on appeal should equally 
lead to an uncertainty that would bar the application of Simmons. Why, why isn't that line of reasoning sound? Because that's not what the law in Virginia is on parole. I, I'm, I'm suggesting the, the law of the United States under Simmons. And you're saying that the, fail, the possibility that judgment may not be entered uh, makes the ineligibility point too uncertain to apply Simmons. And all I'm saying is, if that is sound, then the possibility of an appeal in Virginia upon which he might get relief presumably also makes ineligibility too uncertain to apply Simmons. Isn't that right? No, I think that's not right, because Simmons doesn't speak in terms anywhere in the opinion of, of some separate federal issue apart from what state, parole, state law defines as ineligible. Well, never mind even state law, even if we were doing it on the basis of federal law looking at Virginia. If the conviction were overturned on appeal, I assume what would happen is that the prior ineligibility for parole, which existed upon the conviction, would be eliminated. It would be. Right? But it wouldn't retroactively mean that he was not eligible, ineligible for parole. He is ineligible That's in Virginia from the time of conviction. That's correct. And should it be in reversed later, he would then be, he would then be eligible. That's correct. But he would have been ineligible at the time of this trial. May I ask but, a question about the, on this point? Is it not correct that as, as matter, what do we call federal law or state law, if we look at the concurring opinion in, in Simmons, that if the judge had given an instruction, which you say he didn't really have to give, saying that as things look right now, if that judgment's entered, he'll be ineligible mm-hmm. for parole, the prosecutor would have been entirely free to ask the judge to say, yes, but that judgment might be set aside on appeal, it might not be entered, he might escape, there might be commutation, there might be a change in the law, and there might be a pardon. So that even if the instruction had been given, to the extent that there is this uncertainty in the picture, it was perhaps the prosecutor could easily have cleared that up and said, well, nothing in life is certain because of all these facts. That's correct, Justice Stevens, but Simmons does not require the instruction unless he is No, but one of the points that's made in Simmons is that the prosecutor has this option of being sure that the information is not misleading. See, that's what the main thing we're looking for is not misleading the jurors. Well, but Simmons tells state courts very clearly, expressly, a very narrow exception to the general rule was carved out in yeah. Simmons. The, con- the concurring opinion in Simmons pointed out that the, this is an exception to the general rule that you ordinarily don't get into this subject because it can be right. so confusing to the jury. Yes. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. It also pointed out how unfair it is for the prosecutor to make an argument about future dangerousness and conceal the fact that he's not likely to get out of prison. It also, that argument is also. Well, I, like I would disagree thing. with that because I think what Simmons expressly says is that's only unfair if he would be ineligible as a matter of state law. And you have to look at when a state court is reading Simmons, is it reasonable for them to rule and to decide? Read Simmons, look at this defendant. If he was eligible for parole, then Simmons simply doesn't apply. And there's nothing in Simmons to support this different type of nebulous standard that Rambis is now proposing. Well, I don't see why, why, why exactly. I mean, the, the argument, on the, I think, would be that, that Simmons says when a person is ineligible for parole. As a matter of state law. As a matter of state law, uh, you must uh, 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 tell the jury, let him tell the jury. Correct. Well, this person is. He simply is. Well, the Virginia Supreme now, Court now, said they, Now, but they're not deciding the federal question. I, I mean, and Simmons itself 
See, it's a federal question. Whether he, and, and, and they're not deciding that federal question. And Simmons itself understands that there is some uncertainty as to whether the person really will get out. The conviction could be reversed on parole. That's right. And That's then there's irrelevant. no difference between that kind of uncertainty, like reversal on parole, and the kind of uncertainty that consists of whether the judge will perform a ministerial act. Now, that, that's, 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 I'm, I'm recasting it because Simmons I want to get set, your response to the Simmons recast. Set, Simmons set a threshold that was a very bright line rule for state courts. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I believe that that, as some of the members of the court this morning have said, Ramdas's proposed standard, there's no way this court would have to take every case to decide on the facts of that case. Why, why, beyond sir, a why, why, fact, why would you? Suppose you simply said, where they're ineligible, and they are ineligible, where there has been an authoritative determination uh, that they are guilty of the crime. Well, I this, mean, that's it. This Clear, may right well, line. And I don't think anybody could this, say that there has not been an authoritative determination that he was guilty of the crime that, that uh, uh, led to uh, no parole. This uh, Court may want to uh, say that, yeah. but it would have to say that in that case on direct appeal because Simmons doesn't say well, that. Well, but wouldn't that be implicit in Simmons? I mean, the issue didn't come up in Simmons uh, uh, as to, I agree with you, it didn't come up because everyone knew that he was ineligible. But if you were to ask a lawyer, what does it mean? They'd say, well, there, where there's been an authoritative determination, nobody would think. But the Court of Appeals had to decide an appeal that wasn't gotten there. But Everybody would think there has to be some judicial determination. But, Justice Breyer, the, the issue is not what is implicit in Simmons under 2254D. The issue is, was it clearly established? And, and for that matter, and, and along for looking at whether it was clearly established or not, even three years after Simmons, this Court was debating in Brown versus Texas Three members of the court joined Justice Stevens' statement regarding denial of cert as to whether Simmons might should apply to defendants who are eligible for parole um, after serving 35. No, no, in but I grant it's absolutely not decided in Simmons. And it's the question of the authoritative. That is a, but I, that's essentially the issue that Randis is making now. I think Simmons should apply to me despite the fact that I am eligible for that I am eligible for parole as opposed to ineligible for parole. If that, if that issue was debatable... Surely you're court, not eligible for parole if you haven't been convicted. I mean, if the judge is going to set aside the jury's conviction, you're not eligible for parole. Parole doesn't correct. enter if, into it. If that Domino's Pizza case had not been entered, and it may not have been at that time, we're now looking with hindsight so we know what happened, but at that time, no one could say with certainty that would happen. And if that had not been entered... You can be sure that Randass would have been fighting tooth and nail to have been found eligible for parole. I mean, his argument would have been completely different. He would not have an argument at all today. His argument is based upon a misapprehension of state law, and we know that because the Virginia Supreme Court has said it. In Simmons, this Court repeatedly used the phrase ineligible under state law. This Court, three years after Simmons in Brown versus Texas, was telling state courts it's debatable on the court still as to pretty much the extent of the Simmons rule as applying to eligibles or ineligibles for parole. You cannot, therefore, go back and say that the Virginia Supreme Court's decision was in any way objectively unreasonable. Um, in, in Odell, this court defined Simmons as that narrow exception carved out of the general rule. It's a bright line rule. The court 
found under state law, and, and Ramdes does not take exception with the state law ruling that he was eligible for parole, there, was, there is nothing in Simmons to say that there is some separate um, standard. And, in fact, as the Fourth Circuit said, and I think they were correct, any time we get into a discussion of parole eligibility, it necessarily is going to collapse into a discussion of state law. It's not like a case where you have, oh, there's some subsidiary state law kind of factual findings, and then you make a federal law determination. Simmons is uniquely dependent completely, unless this Court is going to change it and extend it, completely dependent on what state law is. That's the way Simmons was written. If the Court doesn't like it and wants to extend it, it needs to do that in a case on direct appeal. It cannot do it in a collateral case under 2254D, because you cannot, in this case, look at Simmons, read Simmons, and say that what the Virginia Supreme Court did was unreasonable. I mean, you're absolutely right that it's dependent on what state law is. But is it dependent upon what the state law decides the federal question to be? According to Simmons, the state law determines whether he's eligible or not. That's true. But here, was the Virginia court doing anything other than deciding the federal question of whether, for purposes of Simmons, he is uh, eligible or ineligible for parole? I think they're the same. Under this, the way the Simmons right, now, was written — Now, do we written, have to listen to a state court's determination of that federal question? If the federal que- — if you're saying the federal question is whether he's eligible for parole or not, then yes. The answer is yes, because Simmons is currently written — would give a reasonable jurist reading it that impression. If we're going to say that it's our decision, a federal decision, whether he's eligible under, whether he's eligible for parole, it would be a very strange way to describe it as saying it depends on whether he's eligible for parole under Virginia law or under South Carolina law. It seems to me meaningless to say to say that we're going to refer to South Carolina law, but the answer that South Carolina gives is not necessarily the right answer. I, I, I really don't understand how that argument goes. Do you understand how that argument goes? No, I don't. It depends on Virginia law, but it really doesn't depend on Virginia law. I, I, would I don't understand. The, 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 this is a very unusual from It's very complicated and philosophical in a sense. It's an unusual case where the legal situation in, in, in Virginia is totally clear. There's no disagreement about it. Correct. And the only thing that happens in that absolutely agreed-upon legal situation is a Virginia court says, we are going to use these words, ineligible for parole, to apply to this situation simply because the judge hasn't yet come in yet. Now, I'd say that's the federal question. Well, and, and it's, and it's, I'm it's not rather, sure what that, the... That's the federal question about whether you should use those words, ineligible for parole, in respect to Simmons, on this absolutely agreed-upon legal circumstance in Virginia. But I don't see how how a state court looking to see whether someone is eligible for parole or not under state law can do anything else. I mean, they have to look at their own law What you could say is the matter of federal law, which is clear from Simmons, is the following. Where there has been an authoritative determination by the state that the person is ineligible for parole or convicted of the third crime that makes him ineligible, that's when Simmons cuts in. Now, I think maybe that's implicit in Simmons, and, and, and well, you would I say, no, it isn't. But one thing I would be certain is I don't think that the state court's answer to that question would get deference from a federal court. 
Well, then I think the federal court then would be redetermining state law and eligibility for parole, and that is not contained anywhere in Simmons. What Randall? I guess we could have said in Simmons uh, that the question is whether he is likely to be paroled by by South mm-hmm. Carolina, mm-hmm. or or very likely to yes. be paroled by Virginia. Beyond a reasonable yes, doubt. Yes, we didn't say that. that. We said whether that's he is eligible for parole under South Carolina. That's correct. Virginia law. What Ramdes's real complaint here is simply that his order of convictions came different than what he wishes they were. That claim isn't before the court. He never preserved that claim. If he wanted to have preserved that claim, he should have asked for a continuance or asked for something to make him ineligible under state law, because that's his real complaint here, one that was never made. Is your answer to their argument that the same thing was really true in South Carolina because the parole board hadn't yet made him ineligible for parole, that that's not mentioned in the opinion? Is that your answer to that argument? Well, that you can't impute that, certainly, to the Virginia Supreme Court reading Simmons, because that that entire argument — Even though that's part of our holding, our opinion didn't explain that, and therefore the state court wasn't on notice. Justice Stevens, I don't believe it's in the opinion at all. No, I know it isn't, but it was in the briefs. And so right. do you think — but if that fact had been spelled out, do you think Simmons would have been decided differently? No, I don't. No. So then isn't, isn't it fair to say even though that was the holding and the only unfairness to the Virginia Supreme Court is it wasn't spelled out in the opinion? No, no then at least he if would have — If they had read the briefs and knew that was a fact, do you think they would have come out the same if way? It was, if that was — if his claim — of a different standard of reviewing parole eligibility for whatever reason, because the parole board in South Carolina Well, the argument would be the same argument you're making here, that he really was not yet ineligible for parole because the parole board had had not yet entered the order that made him so. I think then at least he'd have some argument here, but he has no argument here because Simmons doesn't say that. I mean, at least then he might have a basis for his claim. Simmons decided that. to my because knowledge, that argument was on the table, and the court didn't think it was strong enough even to mention in the opinion, and yet rejected it. If that's true, if we have to impute that to state courts to go back and read the briefs to see what was rejected, either does that, or we have to assume that this, most state courts would react to that argument the same way we reacted to that argument. That it's so obviously frivolous that to, to, to wait for that uh, meaningless delay, that that shouldn't change the result. Well, I think absent it somewhere in the opinion, you simply can't say that the Virginia Supreme Court unreasonably applied Simmons. Thank you, Ms. Baldwin. Uh, Mr. Bruck, you have seven minutes remaining. If Your Honor, please, really the only point I'd like to respond to is this idea of the slippery slope that Virginia uh, advances. I would suggest that if there is any slippery slope on this case, it is on the other side of the issue. If, um, uh, if the, the due process rule, the right of rebuttal rule in Simmons were now to give way to something so constrained by formalism and an arid explication of what state law says parole eligibility means to the exclusion of the federal question, if Simmons is to be contracted in Ramdas versus Angelone to meaning that, then states that no longer wish to be to abide by Simmons at all have a roadmap to opt out uh, of the Simmons principle. And I think the South Carolina procedure is a perfect way of doing it, to delay the formal declaration. And there could be some sorts of factual determinations, none of which would be in doubt. There'd be no suspense about any of it, but the time had not yet come. 
when the jury wants to know the answer. So you maybe we should reformulate Simmons then and say, you know, that the issue is whether he is likely or overwhelmingly likely or beyond a reasonable doubt will be paroled by Virginia. One need not go so far. That would solve the problem that you're worried about. But unfortunately, that isn't what we said in Simmons. Well, I'm really not worried about it because I don't think that that this Court will uh, restrict. um, Maybe Simmons itself was a mistake. Well, that leads me to my last point, which is Simmons has been accepted very comfortably by the states. Um, In fact, even before Simmons, there were very few state courts that did not go further than what Simmons held was required by due process, and now there are almost none. Virginia itself no longer has this whole procedure. They now have eliminated parole for everybody, and they tell everybody uh, in every case whether uh, future dangerousness is argued or not. Yarborough versus Commonwealth. They have gone beyond Simmons. So the, the issue of, of what was a small change in the law at the time of Simmons is no longer controversial. It is in repose. And I would suggest that it would be most unwise and most unfortunate uh, for this Court to reawaken what was a small controversy four, five, six years ago and is now no controversy at all. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Brook. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.